Radio. I'm Max Reaper, editor of Royals Review, and joining me as usual is Jeremy Greco. Jeremy, how are you doing this week? I'm doing pretty good. Good. And also joining us is Matthew Lamar. Matthew, how are you doing? I am doing pretty good. I got my Dr. Pepper. I'm ready to talk Royals. All right. Well, also joining us for the first time uh, is a new writer, Colin Jekyll. Colin, thanks for being on the podcast this week. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Uh, I should say, you, you're, this is the first time, but actually, <laughs> if I'm being completely honest, uh, you know, if you're a regular listener, you may say, hey, how come there wasn't a podcast last week? Uh, that's because I had Colin on and actually a Greg Walker, who was another uh, new writer on staff. Uh, we had a great conversation and I did not record it properly, uh, so we cannot share that conversation with the world. So I apologize to Colin and Greg for that, uh, and I apologize to our listeners for not having a, a, an episode last week, but we're back. I think the technical issues have been ironed out, uh, and uh, we have some, I guess now we have more Royals news to talk about. Uh, I guess we'll start with I, the latest news. We're recording this on Wednesday evening. Royals had an afternoon uh, game in Chicago today, uh, freezing weather. But we got the news today that Adalberto Montesi is hurt again. He made it almost a full month this season before he got uh, hurt. Uh, injured himself. Looked like he was getting back to first base. Uh, or was actually was trying to take off to steal. And then it kind of re- looked like he re-aggravated his, his knee when he was trying to get back to first on a pickoff attempt. Uh, they did an MRI and found structural damage to his knee. And they, uh, according to all the beat riders, they expect him to land on the injured list by Thursday, we don't know exactly what the corresponding roster move will be, but you know, Jeremy, it, it, it's 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 got to be really frustrating for him. It's frustrating for the team. I know the fans are frustrated. It's not like he's meaning to get hurt. I mean, what's kind of your response to seeing Adalberto Montesi injured once again? I my first response is it sucks for him primarily. Um, this dude is out here trying to to make a career for himself um i know especially last year there was a lot of uh when he got hurt there was a lot of oh he doesn't want to play or you know etc etc but listen the guy's still on his rookie deal and with the tools he has um and he's he's shown some flashes in the past i you know it's been a hot minute but he has shown those flashes and, and a guy like him could hope to, to get a real major league career and make millions of dollars. Um, you know, maybe not Fernando Tatis Jr. money, but uh, journeyman money certainly seemed on the table, but he he made it a month into the season. He would, did not look good as a player. He was not, he didn't have a single home run, uh, was not getting on base. Didn't have a single extra know. base hit. Yeah. It's all singles when he did get hits. Um, and a lot of bunting, uh, which has obviously been covered by Royals Review. Um, just, he he just, it's not working. And I, it makes sense to me for the Royals to keep him for the, the extent of his rookie contract, but I, I, don't, I don't know what happens after that. I expect he roams around and does minor league deals, but I just feel so bad for him because I know that he wants to get out there, he wants to play, he wants to, to prove that he can do this, and it, it's just not happening. Well, and the Royals do have his rights for this year and the next year as well. And, you know, he will be, depending on what happens this year, you know, he may only be out for two weeks or something like that, you know, and maybe he comes back a, a rejuvenated player. But certainly if he's out for an extended period of time and, and continues to struggle, I mean, I think he would probably be a non-tender candidate this this offseason, Matthew. Um, you know, I, I, he is kind of at a crossroads in his career. 
uh, uh, the Royals, you know, they're pretty loyal to their players, but, you know, is this maybe the end for Adam Archimondes, or at least are we starting to see the beginning of the end of his career in Kansas City? Yeah, I think so. This certainly feels different, right? So, like, um, in 2020, he was pretty healthy. Uh, he was fully healthy. He played in all 60 games, but it was just a 60-game season. Um, and then last year, he played pretty well um, when he was healthy, um, and he was just injured for so much of the year. Um, and then this really kind of feel, felt like, okay, no, but really, this is this is the year, right? This is it. Um, and... It just it just hasn't happened. He hit very very poorly, and then he got injured. I think it would be different conversation if he was tearing the cover off the ball and then got injured. I think fans would be like, "No, not again," but would be patient, you know, and, and wait for him. Um, the thing with Mondesi that I've sort of come around on personally, um, just just after this recent inju- injury and his recent string of performances, is that like. I he you just can't rely on him like you can't rely on him to be a good hitter. Um, he's extremely streaky. So when he's bad, he's absolutely unplayably bad. But the trick is you never know how long that's going to last. And then he'll flip a switch and suddenly be the best player in baseball. Not even an exaggeration over a three or four week stretch. Um, but the problem with him is two things. One, he's so streaky that when he's bad, he's super duper bad. And then number two is you just can't rely on him to be healthy at, at all. So it's you're always sort of – if he's a starter, you're always going to be yanking your lineup around like, oh, well, we, we, we went into this year with uh, a certain expectation of, okay – Witt's third base, Mondesi's shortstop, Lopez is at second, Witt Merrifield's in right field. Um, and when shortstop is Bobby Witt's like, main defensive position, that that feels kind of significant. And then when Mondesi, if Mondesi's out for a while, the Royals have to figure out what they're going to do with Witt. Are they going to keep him at third base? Are they going to move him to shortstop? You know, and you're always going to be having these sorts of things with Mondesi. I think that ultimately Mondesi could stick around as a reserve player. Um, I think that if he, you know, sort of spent some time in the minors and learned like outfield, um, and especially learned some outfield over the, um, you know, over the off season, I think that he could, Mondesi could be a pretty useful utility player. Um, you weren't going to rely on him to play 162 games. He can play 60, 70, 80 games. It'd be fine for you. If he gets hurt, you know, it's no big deal. You're not losing a, you know, main player. And if somebody else gets hurt, he can steps up. But I think his day, I think, I don't know if this is a little bit over the top, but I think this means his like days of being a regular are it. Well, and that's, that's what it kind of sounded like the plan was last fall when, you know, Dave Moore made those kind of comments about, you know, we can't count on him as an everyday player anymore. And yet, you know, he kind of walked those comments back and then they kind of threw that plan out the window in spring training and said, well, we're going to play him. And he started every game this season until, you know, he got hurt. Um, and so, I, I, which kind of surprised me. I, I don't know if that's necessarily the, the wrong uh, tack to take either. I You know, I don't know that there's really a rhyme or reason to his injuries at this point. You're, you're almost kind of better off throwing him out there as much as you can and seeing, you know, what you can get from him. And, and, and Jeremy's right. You know, you, I was a Matthew, you know, you know, he is, you know, bad, bad, bad until he's good. And then suddenly he's amazing. So, you know, it's hard to really pick those hot streaks. Uh, Colin, what, you know, if you're the Royals, you know, say he comes back in two, four, six weeks, 
How do you handle him at this point? Is he a guy that you want to put in the starting lineup every day? Should they kind of transition him to more of a reserve role at this point, or should they kind of cut their losses at this point? Well, thankfully they've got two guys on the major league roster who can move over to shortstop right now in Bobby Witt Jr. and Nicky Lopez. So I think it really depends on how those guys perform in this period of time that Mondesi's out. If it's something like last year where Nicky Lopez plays incredibly well and, you know, he was like six six war type player last year. I don't know that we can expect that from Nicky again. But if he plays well or if Whit Jr. plays well and Mondesi comes back, you know, it's going to kind of be starting the clock over for Mondesi. He, as you've all discussed, he's such a streaky player um right now he was in that very cold phase hopefully he was going to start warming up soon but when he comes back it's almost like the clock turns back to zero um i would not unless those guys are struggling i would not insert him back in the lineup at the expense of lopez or bobby witt jr um as Matt Matthew was saying, uh, you know, maybe a time a sin in the minors, learning an extra position, possibly in the outfield, would behoove Mondesi as well as the rest of the team. But quite honestly, I mean, it it looks like uh, he's going to have to make up a lot more ground in the future, especially if uh, the guys who step up in his place step up really well. Yeah, you almost wonder if he's going to get kind of Wally pipped out of a, a starting job. Like, they've got other options here, and frankly, I think the defense is pretty good with Nicky Lopez at short and Whit Merrifield at second. It's almost like they're ideal positions uh, in a way. Um, or you could also put Bobby Wood Jr. at short. Um, but I, I think they probably go with, you know, Nicky at short, Wood at second, and give some opportunities, hopefully, Edward Olivares and Kyle Isbell in right. I'm sure you'll probably see some Hunter Dozier out there as well. Um, but. You know, if that starts clicking for this lineup, um, you want you know you almost think that they can't really put Montesi back in the lineup as a regular again, and and so I do wonder if this is kind of the transition to easing him out of the starting lineup. And uh, yeah, it's it's frustrating. It's too bad because you see him in glimpses and he looks just amazing, and you kind of wonder you know what if. Uh, but uh, you know, hopefully he comes back before too long and he can put it together. But at this point, I'm not sure you can really count on him. Uh, one guy that they have been kind of been able to count on his last two times out is Daniel Lynch. And, you know, last couple podcasts, a couple podcasts ago, we were lamenting about, you know, how awful these young starting pitchers were. And, and still, some of them are really struggling. Uh, Chris, Chris Bubich uh, did not look good his last time out. I don't know if you guys have seen Jackson Coar start in Omaha tonight, but it is not pretty. Uh, but Daniel Lynch, on the other hand, has looked very impressive his last two times out. 11 shutout innings in his last two starts. Uh, Matthew, is it are we finally seeing one of these starting pitchers emerge from this rookie class? I think uh, potentially, and it, it doesn't surprise me that it's um, that's Daniel Lynch. Um, I think when you look at the the rest of the pitchers, and I, I feel like I've, I'm getting deja vu because I've probably said something very similar about this, but um, the other pitchers have some pretty severe flaws. Um, Brady Singer has a really nice fastball slider combination, no changeup. Chris Bubich has, um, you know, decent curveball. He's got a great changeup. His fastball is hit, like, really hittable. Like, if you look at stats about who's been hitting his fastball, it's been everyone and a lot. Um and then Jackson Carr, I mean, I don't know what the deal, the deal is with him. It feels, you know, he should have 
you know, at least a fastball and changeup, and be, you know, at least be a lock to be a decent bullpen guy. But I don't, I don't even know if that's that's a thing anymore. So, um, it it does not surprise me that Daniel Lynch is is the one because when you think about it. Um, Lynch has the full arsenal. He's got the fastball. He was running up at 96 miles an hour as a lefty. That's that's awfully good for a lefty starter. Um, he has the changeup. He was using the changeup regularly, um, and he has a slider. He has a killer slider. And really, he his arsenal kind of reminds me of like young uh, Danny Duffy in a way. Duffy had a similar kind of mix where he had a fastball, he had a changeup, and he had a breaking ball. And of the four. Of the top four, you know, 2018 pitchers, Lynch is the only guy who you can say, yeah, he's got all three of those weapons. And lo and behold, he seems, you know, Brady Singer, Chris Bubich have had some some success in spurts. But um, I think Lynch for a long term is is your best bet to be like an above average starter because of all those tools he has. Um, But I will will say that, you know, we – the Royals made a big deal of all of their pitchers making it to the big leagues because that generally doesn't happen. Um, those four pitchers that they drafted um, in like the first 40 odd picks all making the big leagues, that's super unusual. And I think we probably at the very least need to pull back and take a look to see what is, you know, reasonable to expect from this group of pitchers. Um, because we can't all expect them to be great. If the Royals out of these four picks get one above average starter and one above average reliever, they will have done extremely well. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully that um, we can see that from Lynch. Um, and we've seen the little glimpses from Brady Singer in, in the bullpen. He's through 97 like the other day, which is quite something with his like cut fastball. Um, so, you know, the Royals, maybe all of this sort of, um, I don't know. It's it's the perspective thing is is just an interesting piece that it's really easy to get your perspective knocked off. But uh, yeah, just trying to keep keep in perspective that not all four of them could could succeed or were going to succeed. That was always an unreasonable expectation. Well, Jeremy, what is kind of your expectation for these young starters? Because you know we it's still early, obviously, for a lot of the careers, but we have more data on them. We know the pitchers tend to kind of develop pretty quickly if they're going to make it um you know what do you see of daniel lynch what's his kind of upside and do you think there's anyone out of this crop that can maybe join him in breaking through if he has indeed broken through so the the first thing i want to say real quick is i want to address uh what matthew said um it is super impressive honestly that the royals got all four of those pitchers up to the big leagues that this is not it was never guaranteed. It was treated like it was a guarantee, um, which I'll get to in just a moment, but it wasn't. It wasn't a guarantee. Uh, the, when the Royals had the the best farm system in the history of whatever, they had, I think they had four pitchers uh, who were in the top 100 at that time. And uh, only Danny Duffy made it to the big leagues uh, with any speed. And, and he's the only one that really stuck around out of that group. Um, so it is an accomplishment at the same time, the 2018 draft was done in such a way where the Royals were relying on finding more success than normal out of that group, or else it was going to be a real problem. Um, and 
and so that's what we're looking at now. That's why there's a lot of frustration now is because they, they took that group and they said, look, at the, these guys are all high floor guys. They should make the big leagues. And now we need to find some ceiling in them. Uh, and and it's been frustrating because the ceiling hasn't been there. But Daniel Lynch is looking pretty good. I was just looking at his fan graphs uh, to see if I could see, you know, what is he doing differently this year than last year? Because he had some success last year, but he also was a little shaky. And one thing that jumps out to me is he's throwing his slider almost as often as his fastball this year, uh, which is a really interesting change to me. And I actually, uh, it seems to be working out because he's throwing more pitches in the strike zone, but getting significantly more swings on pitches outside the strike zone, which means people are chasing that slider now, um, which is the big thing he needed from last year. People weren't chasing the slider. And that's, that's one thing he's going to need to get a lot of success. If that continues, he could absolutely become uh, a a big deal, a front end starter for the Royals. Uh, you know, maybe not a super ace in the in the the realm of Max Scherzer or Clayton Kershaw, but uh, I I would hope uh, to really make that 2018 draft a success. I think it doesn't just need to be one very good pitcher and one very good or one very good starter and one very good reliever. I think we need like better than Danny Duffy, better than the Jordano Ventura we saw. And I know Jordano Ventura, we didn't get as much of him as we would have liked. Uh, anyone would have liked. Uh, unfortunately, we lost him too young. But uh, what we did get from him as a pitcher was was always a little, was, was so much promise and not as much results. And so hopefully uh, if, if Daniel Lynch can find those results that were always just just outside the reach of your Dono Ventura and Danny Duffy. Uh, I think that we could really be uh, looking at something special uh, because uh, between Brady Singer and Chris Bubich, I think you've got at least one really good reliever, maybe even two. Um, one thing really quick that I want to bring up that I, I didn't quite because I couldn't find it um, is last uh, September, I posted an article and it's called why we should temper our expectations about the 2018 draft class of pitchers. Um, and so what I did is I went and I looked through um, since so from 2000 to 2015, I looked at every college pitcher between selections 15 and 50 um, from a four year college who signed with that that team. And there were 108, 158 pitchers um, who met all of those qualifications. So signed between the 15th and the 50th picks four-year college signed with the team that drafted them. And, uh, and I looked, and this is per baseball reference war. Um, but of those 158, 49 of them. So less than a third managed a career wins above a replacement of more than one. Um, so when you think about it, you know, to get even a couple of like, okay, pitchers, um, with the type of player that the Royals drafted and then ran drafted four times, um, you know, statistically the Royals are probably already have probably already gotten the average or a little bit more of what they would expect. And when you look at like the list of pitchers, so the best pitchers per, uh, the, per war on from that list are Lance Lynn, Sonny Gray, Jeremy Guthrie, uh, and Ian Kennedy. So those are like the types of pitchers, um, that came from the background that the Royals had. Um, and you certainly a Lance Lynn or a Sonny Gray would be, be a really great development, but those guys are you know pretty rare. There's two out of 158. So, you know, it's it, again, temper the expectations. Yeah. I remember they made a big deal about 
you know, four guys from one draft class making a start. And there was that, that it only happened three times before in baseball history. Uh, but these are the groups of pitchers that had done before. So it's the 1995 Mets had Bobby Jones, who had a nice, nice career as a, as a decent starter, not an ace, but a, a solid pitcher. Bill Pulsifer, who was oft injured. Jason Isringhausen, who I converted to a reliever and, and really made it there. And Jason Hockamy, who never really cut it. You had the 1995 White Sox, who had Alex Fernandez, who was a solid pitcher but got hurt. James Baldwin, who had a solid, okay career, but certainly not an ace. Jason Bray, who was a solid pitcher but also had injury problems. And Rod Bolton, who didn't really make it. And then you had the 2018 Cardinals, who had Jack Flaherty, who was a really solid pitcher. Luke Weaver, who it's still kind of early, but hasn't really, I don't think, produced that much. Austin Gomber, who, again, hasn't really made it yet. And Daniel Ponce de Leon, who's kind of, I think he's already bounced around a little bit. So... It's like you get one guy maybe who has an okay career. You're probably going to have one guy that's injured, one guy that ends up in the bullpen, and one guy that doesn't cut it. And I don't know. We'll see if that ends up uh, working for the Royals. But, Colin, you had an interesting article a couple of weeks ago about um, how maybe the Royals need to go about it differently. If you're going to build a pitching staff, maybe the draft is not the best way to go. Tell us a little about your article and, and kind of the thoughts you had on, on the pitcher development of the Royals. Well, Max, you also bring up a good point, and I didn't talk about this much in the article, but, I mean, as Dayton Moore has said, pitching is the currency of baseball. For those 2018 Cardinals that you were just talking about, they used two of those pitchers as centerpieces for trades to land two of their best hitters. Luke Weaver was part of the trade package that went to Arizona to get back Paul Goldschmidt, and Austin Gomber was part of the package that went to Colorado to get Nolan Arenado. So... You know, even if these guys on the Royals right now don't necessarily make it with the Royals, they could still benefit the Royals if the Royals decide to package them and go get somebody else Um, or a couple different players in this case. But that article that I wrote talked about how uh, it it looked back at the Chicago Cubs back in uh, their World Series uh, season of 2016 and even the Royals World Series winning season of 2015 and how those two teams um, mainly built around uh, not the pitching staff through the draft. They used the draft to get hitters and then they supplemented those hitters with either uh, guys they traded for or guys they signed in free agency. Like in that 2015 season for the Royals, the only two homegrown pitchers they had on the staff were Danny Duffy and Yordano Ventura. The next year, I don't think the Cubs had any homegrown starting pitchers uh, on that staff. Um, So that was kind of my argument is maybe the Royals should kind of look at things differently because it's not just that 2018 draft. I had it in the article. I think it was like something of they in a five year period, they've taken 11 or 12 of their early round picks on pitchers. Um, In other than Daniel Lynch right now, they're not really panning out. Um, So and I do know, you know, it, one thing you'll, I think that drafts are eventually graded on or looked back on is who went right after you made that selection. And I know he hasn't made the major leagues yet, but for the Royals back in 2018, with that 18th pick, they took Brady Singer. Very next pick, the Cardinals took Nolan Gorman. And Gorman, while he's not in the majors, he is absolutely tearing it up in Triple A right now. I just looked at his numbers and he's just... He really is tearing the cover off the ball. He's got 10 home runs and an OPS uh, of 
So he's uh, playing pretty pretty well, and he's still just 21. I mean, if he goes on to have a solid major league career um, as a hitter, and Brady Singer is a mediocre reliever, I think that's going to be quite the indictment of Dayton Moore. Um, so I'll be curious to see. Um, it, it's still a couple months away, but I'll be curious to see what the Royals do in this draft and also what they plan on doing in free agency next year if they decide to open up the pocketbook finally and try to lure back uh, some more starting pitchers. And I said finally, but they did they did open it up this past offseason to get Zach Granke, but they need more outside help, and I think that's um, it, it might be the more expensive route to go, but if I mean, they're – that might just be the route that they have to go if these younger arms just continually uh, flame out. And just to add on to that, didn't you, uh, back in 2018, before the Royals made all those draft picks, didn't you, Matthew, write an article uh, analyzing, like, which draft picks were the most likely to work out, and it ended up being college hitters, followed by high school hitters, followed by college pitchers, followed by high school pitchers? Like, didn't it say drafting pitchers doesn't work? Yeah, I, I wrote something at the time, and I think Rainey, Jesse Early, also wrote something at the time where it's basically, um, you know, the, the drafting the hitters is the, the better way to go, go about it um, because they're more likely to make the major leagues and more likely to uh, be really good. Um, but, you know, uh, the trick is that if you draft a high school pitcher, like the really great pitchers, like in the game today, we're almost all, all drafted as, as high school pitchers. So there's a very high risk reward kind of thing there. Um, but my point, you know, at the time was, you know, draft hitters, then when you draft hitters, they're more likely to succeed and more likely to do it. And especially with the Royals, um, track record. I say in quotes of, of developing <laughs> starting pitching, like it, you know, it made sense for them to, uh, you know, draft draft hitters. But I, but I also wonder, like at some point, I think that, you know, I'm not the only person with access to that data. All of the teams have access to the data that says that um, college hitting and high school hitting is is more likely to be a good, you know, a, a good investment. So there is something to be said for zigging when other when other teams are zagging, you know, there's value on the draft board where there's value on the draft board. And if it happens to be a pitcher, you know, that's, that's just how it rolls. And I, I think that for like one draft, it's not necessarily the worst thing in the world, but you know, yes, you are, you are right. Um, high school hitters and college hitters are the safest way to get talent in your big league organization for sure. The problem of course is that you, do need to have a pitching staff and the Royals obviously they can't or at least won't go out and, and sign kind of top shelf starting pitchers. I did wonder, I, I thought there was a chance maybe this off season that they would kind of cash in one or two of their starters and try to go after a Frankie Montas or someone, someone else that might be available. Um, and as I guess, as more time goes along and then some of these guys kind of show that they aren't, you know, if they continue to struggle, certainly they lose trade value. So I don't know. Maybe that ship has sailed. Certainly, there's you know, there's other guys in the system. You know, Aza Lacy. Um, you know, Alec Marsh could have some trade value. Um, there's some, you know, uh, certainly other guys that could have uh, appealed to other teams. Is there is there anyone out there that you think that? I mean, I guess Jeremy, let's start with you. Do you think there's a chance they could make a move like that, or do you think Dayton is just a little too 
wedded to his guys and maybe not as transactional as uh, he, he wants it to be. Uh, yeah, so I, I wrote last weekend that the Royals are not as transactional as they should be, not as transactional as Dayton Moore kind of promised last year that they would be. Uh, so I guess that kind of answers that question. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not seeing it. I, I, I know everyone said that this offseason was not the offseason to make a big move. But at the same time, this offseason was the offseason where Jackson Kowar still had pretty high value. He had struggled in the big leagues, yes, but he'd also, that was, last year was also the year where he was nails in AAA. And so you could go, well, well, you know, some guys struggle when they first come up, but he's probably still got tons of talent. Well, now he's pitched again this year and he looks terrible in the big leagues and AAA. It's going to be hard to trade him. Uh, and, I really feel like I I don't know if it's a if it's an ego thing or or just the loyalty thing that uh, I mean it's it's certainly at least some part the loyalty thing but uh I don't know if Dayton Moore wants to prove oh my my front office made the the right call with all those draft picks and we're not going to give up on any of those guys. I'm afraid that that might be a thing like maybe loyalty to his front office guys as much as to his players. Um because it's they're, he's putting them in positions now uh, where uh, Brady Singer, you have him starting in AAA because, oh, well, we didn't have spot, we didn't have room for him in the on the roster. You could put him, have him starting in AAA. He'd still have value, uh, high, I think higher value than if you say, well, we're just going to have to make him a reliever. Um, and, and the Jackson Kowar thing, uh, I, I just don't know if – he will make those trades and he's we're certainly seeing their value decline as they go from highly touted prospects to uh MLB players who who are not meeting the lofty expectations that have been laid on them. I did want to turn to the offense a little bit because um it's it's kind of a an annual April tradition. Royals bats are cold to start the year after mashing in spring training in the warm sun of Arizona. The calendar has turned, the weather has gotten colder, and suddenly the bats have gone cold. Uh, the Royals, it's early. Look, it's early. But the Royals are third worst in the American League in runs scored per game. They have the fourth worst on-base percentage, although I'll note they're ahead of moneyball teams like Boston and o- Oakland. Uh, they have the second worst slugging percentage, not a surprise at all. And they have the worst OPS with runners in scoring position, so certainly not taking advantage of runners when they do get them. Uh, Matthew, you had an article this week uh, where you said, "Hey, the formula is not too hard to figure out. Uh, what's the form? Why are the why aren't the Royals uh, very good on offense?" The Royals aren't very good on offense because they don't have very good hitters. <laughs> it's that it's that simple. There you go. Um, but but really, to elaborate on that on that a little bit, um, it's it's pretty simple. You know, the Royals have some guys with potential, um, but I looked. But the but the thing is is that potential doesn't win baseball games, right? The the thing is, good teams have good hitters that are consistent good hitters, and the Royals don't have that. Beyond Salvador Perez, who is uh, for whatever reason has turned into a legit slugger, you can always count on Salvador Perez to provide, maybe not on base percentage, but Salvador Perez is a threat to hit a home run every time he steps up to the plate, and he is a he is a you know, significantly above average hitter. He's really good. Salvador Perez is really good. Andrew Benintendi, he's pretty good. He's on a really hot streak this year, but he's a good, legit hitter, um, above above average hitter. You know, maybe 10% above average, I think, is, is probably a, a good, 
you know, ballpark that you would expect him to hit. And then there's everyone else. Like, literally, uh, the other nine of the 11 people um, who have taken a plate, more than one plate appearance, um, and are Bobby Witt Jr., um, have a below average WRC plus um, since the start of 2020. Um, and you're just you're just not going to win a lot of baseball games when you have, you know, not good hitters. And the problem with the Royals is that not only are they not really good hitters, but a lot of them you can't really expect them to do any, any better for a, a number of reasons. Um, the one guy that you could potentially expect to potentially be a, a, a better hitter is Hunter Dozier. You know, in the longer Hunter Dozier is a good hitter this year, the more it kind of proves that um, it was a little bit of a fluke last year as opposed to last year being the start of something uh, because he's hit for above average um per WRC plus in 2019 and 2020 and this year in 2022. So maybe he just had a bad last year, you know, for, and he was injured, you know, that was a thing. So he's really the only guy that I would think, yeah, like he's, he's a legit probability to be an above average hitter. Um, the rest of the guys on there, you know, they have potential downsides, you know, Nicky Lopez, Nicky Lopez um, has a really strong on base percentage, um, but he has a very, very, very thin, uh, sort of line to walk um, and he just doesn't hit for any power and even though he's got a good on base percentage that's really his only offensive skill um, and so if he's not doing that or if he goes down it's very easy for him to slip under you know league average and he's never going to be like a game-changing offensive force either so his his you know ceiling is limited and then you get to players like Michael A. Taylor um, Carlos Santana uh, those guys are over 30 and they're not getting better and they have been declining in the case of Santana or just never very good in the case of Taylor. Um, Cam Gallagher is a backup, uh, you know, catcher. You don't expect him to be a great hitter, but he's all, he's not a good hitter. That, that is also true. Um, and then there's Mondesi who's like career on base percentage is something like 280, which is like unbelievable to me like the Royals just don't don't have a lot of guys with legit upside um and you either need to have good hitters not like on like graded on the curve good hitters like actual good hitters or you need to have hitters that have the upside to be good hitters and the Royals have those guys but they are in the minor leagues right now yeah you know Michael Taylor you know we don't know he's in the first glove he's not there in first bat uh Carlos Santana it's very likely he's washed at this point but i think the biggest surprise as far as like underperformers is Whit merrifield like he's a guy that's you know declining the last couple years but has still been a very solid bat and you know right now he's uh hitting 136 uh and just you know really some of the bats haven't looked very good at all colin is is that is he a player you're worried about or is he like a professional hitter that's just off to a bad start at this point uh, I'm actually pretty worried about it. Um, his, yeah, his offensive uh, B WAR, or you know, B WAR baseball reference, it's right now at negative point eight, and that's just through 15 games. I mean, he is he is that bad in that short amount of time that he is almost costing them a full run at the plate just through 15 games. Um, and also, you know, he, he, I think, uh, gets a lot of his value too from, or he used to from being a solid second baseman. He's not that solid, uh, solid of a right fielder. He's fine, but he 
is much better of a, as a second baseman. Um, you know, today you you mentioned uh, against the they played against the White Sox and some pretty frigid conditions, and he had a bloop hit that kind of I can't remember if that drove in two runs. I do know he had two RBIs today, but um, you know maybe if things like that start falling, then that, that can help him break out a little bloop hit there and you know something else somewhere else, but. Uh, you, we talked about Mondesi earlier too, about how he had uh, no extra base hits, uh, so of course no home runs. Merrifield's got two doubles. He, he's also struck out seven more times than he's walked, and uh, his, his OPS plus is negative three. I'm always fascinated when an OPS plus is in the negative, but right now Whit Merrifield has that. So you know he's um, he's not he, he's He's above 30. He's 33, so I don't know that he's, uh, you know, that that might be indicative of where his career is uh, is headed. His OPS Plus has continually gone down since 2018 from 120 to 111 to 105. Even last year, it was 8% below league average, and that's when he, had, that's when he led the majors with 42 doubles. He still was uh, below the majors in OPS. So... You know, this is, I don't expect him to be this bad all year, um, of course, so he will rebound. But I think his days of leading the league in stolen bases and doubles and even just double-digit home runs, I think those are done. Yeah, I, I'll note, he, his, his Babbitt, the batting average of balls in play, is at 153. So he's probably been a little unlucky. Um, his strikeout rate is still pretty good. He's not a guy that's whiffing. He looked... I don't know. There's an about yesterday where uh, I forget who it was for the White Sox, but they were gro- grooving 93 mile per hour fastballs down the middle, and he just kind of missed it a couple times. That looked bad, but o- overall, he's not really he's not like his way off. I, he probably could benefit. I think Matthew, you tweeted this like he could probably benefit from a day off. You know, there's no need to do the Iron Man routine at this point. Like, just take a day off. You're 33 years old. Um, you know, right field is probably pretty demanding on his body. Um, it's it's okay. You know, take a day off here and there. Uh, so I'm not super concerned yet. I, I've noticed he is, I, I think, in the, in, the, in the one percentile in Major League Baseball in barrel uh, percentage. Uh, so he's not really squaring up, um, and he's got that really needs to to get anything behind it. So I'm not too concerned yet, but it is something to keep track of. And I do think he is in a kind of slow decline phase where you hope that he doesn't fall off a cliff. Um, so, again, something to keep an eye on, uh, but hopefully he bounces back. And, Matthew, you mentioned – some of the younger guys we can kind of count on the upside. Uh, one of those guys is Bobby Witt Jr. Start, you know, slow start, certainly. Starting to come around a little bit. Six-game hitting streak. Eight for his last 24. Are you optimistic he's kind of turning things around? I don't know if he's turning things around right this second, but I am not worried about him at all. It's a really big jump from AAA to the majors. He's really young, as you have noted, and multiple people have noted. Um, it's pretty unusual for a 21-year-old rookie to be really good offensively right out of the gate. Usually they have a little bit of an acclimation period. So I don't know if this is the start of something that's legit, but... Uh, I expect him to slowly get better and, and click into a groove. It'd be great if that's right now. He still hasn't really hasn't hit a home run yet. Um, I haven't really seen the kind type of like extreme uh, exit velocity that I saw in, in person um, in in Omaha when I went to see uh, a game. He hit a ball. It was a foul ball, but I 
I was just absolutely stunned at how how fast the ball jumped off his bat for a guy his size. And he's he's not like he's not small, but like he hit a ball that I would like you would think that like David Ortiz would hit, and he just like absolute smash of a line drive. It went foul, uh, so you know it wasn't a home run. But that one swing was like oh, oh yeah, I get it now. I haven't seen that type of swing um, in the big leagues. He'll get there. Not worried. Uh, yeah, and his defense has still been really good. So that's been as advertised. Jeremy, is he is Bobby Wood Jr. You know, still a rookie of the year candidate? I know Stephen Kwan. You know, did the Stephen Kwan show to start the season? Jeremy Pena hitting really well for, really well for Houston. But we see some other rookies. Julio Rodriguez struggle. Spencer Torkelson um, got off to kind of a slow start. Um, how do you feel about Bobby Wood Jr. Almost a month into his career. So let me start by telling you a story from many years ago. Uh, it was a summer when I was still a college student. I may not even have been a college student yet. I was visiting my grandmother in North Carolina, and there was nothing going on. I was not going outside. It was way too hot. Um, so I turned on a spring training game. I guess it wasn't summer yet. It was spring, but it was still way too hot. Uh, turned on a spring training game, and the Cardinals were playing, uh, I guess, Atlanta because uh, was, that was the only way it would have been on TV there. Um, and I saw this kid hit this home run over the scoreboard in center field. And I said, this this kid's going places. I don't know who is. And it, it, I was like, who is this Albert Pujols guy? <laughs> I, I've never heard of him. And, uh, you know, obviously he, 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 they were talking about on the broadcast actually how Tony LaRusa, I believe Tony LaRusa was still the manager at the time, had said, uh, Albert Pujols is, is not making the roster out of spring training. It's not happening. He's not ready. And he forced his way onto the team by just playing, having an amazing spring training. But I'll never forget that home run. And I had a very similar feeling watching Bobby Witt Jr. hit a home run in spring training this year. I believe it was the first one he hit. It wasn't over the scoreboard in center field, but boy, did he hit the golly gee willikers out of that ball. Uh, and so I, I have a lot of faith that he's still going to be something special. Uh, it just isn't here yet. Uh, it's, I, I can't say he's going to be a, a, a rookie of the year candidate because he doesn't even have a home run yet, but I'm not counting him out either. Uh, I, I, there's just too much there. The, and, and like I said, that home run just, just really flashed me back to Albert Pujols. That was the, it was the one that everyone was comparing the swing to Mike Trout to, uh, comparing the swing to Mike Trout's swing. So, uh, just to give you another perspective on how other people saw that home run, uh, it's going to happen. I, I have complete 100% faith. It's going to happen for Bobby Witt Jr. Is it happening right this second? Like Matthew, I'm not sure, but it's gonna. Yeah, it's really exciting when you see a kind of a kid that hasn't, I guess, made it yet, and you see him early on. You're like, oh, okay, I, that this kid's, and you can kind of just know that this kid's going to be the real deal. Colin, do you have any thoughts on Bobby Wood Junior.'s start so far? Uh, yeah, I, I like that they moved him back down in the lineup. I think that was a, you know, he he made the team right out of camp, and that's great, but. I have to imagine that the pressure was on him hitting so high in the lineup. So the fact that they dropped him back, uh, you know, to I think he's been hitting seventh, maybe sixth lately. I think that is probably 
more appropriate, uh, especially since he struggled so mightily out of the gate. That way it takes some pressure off of him. And, you know, if he heats up, nothing preventing Mike Matheny from moving him back up to second or third. Um, but, you know, I I did not pick him to win Rookie of the Year in our predictions. I had Julio Rodriguez. Um, but uh, I, I still wouldn't be surprised if Bobby Witt Jr. won Rookie of the Year. And Jeremy, just uh, sorry, I'm a I'm a huge Cardinals fan, so I'm a I know too much random things about the Cardinals. Uh, Pujols made the roster because of another Bobby, Bobby Bonilla. He got hurt, so Larusa had no choice but to. Well, he probably did have a choice, but uh, it was Bobby Bonilla's injury that opened that door. Yeah, it, it, like what's been interesting to me is he's gotten a steady diet of sliders at this point. And I think it was just a matter of time to adjust. I mean, he's never seen breaking stuff like this before. And uh, I forget who pointed it out in, on Twitter, but, um, you know, he struggled initially last year at, at double A. Um, this is his first 15 games with the Naturals last year. 222, 310 on base, 318 slug. Uh, so those aren't great numbers either. Pretty similar to what he's hitting now. Uh, and yet he kind of figured it out and just went on a tear after that and became a great uh, minor league player. So, you know, it's early, and I, I think he's making the necessary adjustments, and like like you guys have said, he's got the skills to do it. Um, it's just a matter of kind of, of recognizing those pitches and being able to make those adjustments. Yeah, let's take a break. Uh, uh, we'll come back. We'll talk about the City Connect uniforms uh, from Nike. All right, well, we're back, and uh, the Royals unveiled their City Connect uniforms this week. It's a collaboration with Nike that's supposed to highlight some of the um, features of a city. They had seven teams with uniforms last year. Um, some of them look pretty sharp, I think. Uh, the, uh, the Red Sox, yellow and blue, I think stands out a little bit. That Some people had divided uh, thoughts on that. The White Sox had some kind of uh, look like almost like graffiti script. Um, and then the Giants, I don't know if that one worked for me so well. But this year, the Nationals uh, unveiled some really pretty uh, cherry blossom uniforms. The Royals uniform uh, features uh, kind of fountain, the fountain look to highlight the, the city of fountains, of course. A little bit of Art Deco look. And I think one of the nice touches is uh, they have uh, hey, 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 hey. Hey, 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 stitched on the inside of the corner. I'm saying like Steve Fiziak. I don't want to say like, hey, 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 like the, the Beatles when they play after wins. Uh, so that's a nice touch. So it's a nice little connection to the city. Uh, Jeremy, just what was your kind of initial thoughts? Uh, I think there was a pretty divided reaction from the fan base. Uh, what was your thoughts on the uniforms? So I'm actually a huge fan of those San Francisco uh, City Connect. And obviously, like, I think uh, the the Nationals ones are universally loved. Uh, so I was very excited to see what was going to happen with the Royals ones. And honestly, I'm a little underwhelmed. Uh, I, they're not ugly by any means. Um, the ideas aren't bad, but the execution just seems to be a little bit lacking. Uh, one thing that was pointed out is that the they've got the white pants and it would it honestly would look cooler. I saw Photoshop if they had the same dark blue that the jerseys are for the pants as well. Um, that logo, that logo is actually really cool up close, but from a distance, it's going to be hard to tell what's going on there. Um, so I, I, I almost want to buy one of those hats because I think the logo is actually really nice. It's pretty slick. 
uh, especially with the like the the little crown in there mixed in with the fountains. It looks really nice. But from a distance, I'm afraid that, uh, you know, when we're watching the game in the stadium or, or uh, even on TV, you're you're going to be looking at just kind of like if you don't already know that that's the KC uh, Nike Connect logo, you're not going to know what's going on there. It's going to look like just uh, a blur. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a big fan of the Kansas City flag and that's kind of what they look like is like the the fountain logo on the flag on the city flag uh just because it looks it looks very much of the 70s which is i think when it was probably designed uh but that being said it looks i think it looks pretty sharp i do like i like the dark blue i i don't like straying from the the main colors but I, you know for something like this i think it makes a lot of sense and, and the, there was some logic to it too like i think they said they incorporated colors that um, you know the Monarchs and the Kansas City Blues, who used to play here in the minor as uh, a minor league affiliate of the Yankees. The Kansas City Athletics had dark blue, so it made some sense the history. But Matthew, what what was your uh, kind of take on the uniforms? Um, ultimately, I, I like them. I like the logo. Um, I like um, you know the use of the powder blue. Um, it's pretty good. Um, I the only thing that I don't like really is I don't I, I don't like that it's navy blue um, because that's that's not like a Royals color, you know. I would have wished that it was something else. Maybe maybe I, I could get behind a navy blue logo if it was all white, you know, maybe or um, if it was all like steel gray. Or, like there, there's a number of different options here, I, but I, I'm I'm not a, a big fan of the navy blue. The logo is great. The uniforms as a whole. I think are good. I just wish it wasn't navy blue. Um, if you had, I, I know this is not like a Monarchs jersey, but like if you had just like given me the like red Monarchs jersey, uh, I'd be like, yep, okay, great. That's that's great. But, you know, I know Nike wants to do their, their own, you know, new thing to honor the city um, specifically. Um, I had a thought. I absolutely hated the black and blue um, jerseys um, from you know, the, the mid two thousands hated them. But after I saw the, um, these, these jerseys, I, I like wonder what it would look like if it was instead of Navy blue, if it was black with that outer blue, because we never got that combination, um, in the, in the mid mid two thousands, we just got the, just like normal Royals, just, just slapped with, with the black Jersey. And I think that, I would rather have it be black because the black is more of a Royals color than Navy blue is. And I sound like a crazy person when I'm saying this because (laughs) I hated those black jerseys. I really did. I I hated them. I really hated them. And yet I think it would have worked here. I really do think it would have worked here. Um, But it's okay. Um, It's probably, probably better that we don't have the black jerseys. But I think it would have looked cool. Maybe, maybe if like the logo was like gold because that's an underused color, you know, black and gold. That'd be something different. That'd be, you know, it's like the Washington Nationals having gray and pink jerseys. You know, that's that's not their colors. It looks good. Um, so that that's kind of what I thought. But um, overall, it's good. I like it. I'd be interested to see how many times they wear it. Yeah, uh, yeah, the black uniforms were an abomination. I, I don't want any memories of that era either. Like just. You know, all, I, all I can see is Ken Harvey and Jason Grimsley, and I don't want to see that. Uh, Colin, what do you what do you think about the these uh, City Connect uniforms and kind of like all these alternative jerseys we're seeing these days? Uh, I really, I mean, I I've been looking at these jerseys for you know a couple of days. They just got 
they just came out on Monday, I guess. Um, they're kind of grown on me a little bit. When I first saw it, I didn't mind the colors, but the logo um, seemed a little strange to me. But, I mean, I know what it's based off of, but it it wasn't the greatest. Uh, it's grown on me a little bit, but, you know, to your to your broader question about the all these uh, alternative jerseys, I'm just not a fan. Uh, I understand why teams are doing this, why the league is doing this, but um, just I'm, I'm looking kind of broadly at, at the group of the City Connect jerseys, and I don't really like any of them. Um, and I would just kind of rather these the teams uh, stick to their normal uniforms and their normal alternative jerseys. I do. I would like to read an article about how much how much uniform creep there is now. Like how many different uniforms each team wears now compared to like. I mean, when I was a kid, it was just you had homes and roads. I mean, like <laughs> you have Sunday alternate jerseys, Friday alternate jerseys. You got City Connect uh, Players Weekend. Uh, so I, you know, <sighs> now now I sound like old man yelling at cloud, but uh, I don't know. They're, they are the if you're going to do alternate uniforms, I think these are pretty sharp, and I, I I'm okay with seeing them. Uh, wear them out. I did see they were selling them for like $170. So. Oh, did you see I, the only ones I saw were like 400 Yeah, it's, I think that was like a special version or I don't know. Okay. They're, they're, so not, those, they're not cheap. Those are the authentic versions mm-hmm. and then the replica versions, which are slightly lower quality. Um, those are the ones that are cheaper, quote unquote. Gotcha. Uh, the, the authentic ones, those are basically the same as the ones that they were in the field. Um, that's why they're so expensive. That makes sense. Baseball is so accessible for the average fan now. That's, uh, that's yeah. <laughs> Let's uh, wrap things up with our Royals review reviews. Jeremy, why don't you kick it off this week? All right. So I'm going to use the one that didn't make it last time. <laughs> uh, I'm going to recommend the Legend of Heroes Tales series. Uh, so that's a series of JRPGs. That's uh, that's a long-running series. It's, it's running almost as long maybe yeah actually longer if you go because it's a spinoff of a spinoff uh jrpgs are just great because they're long running and they spin off in wild directions uh so it's a spinoff of a spinoff and it's been around since the 80s uh in one form or another and uh so it's uh it's just basically a set a group of games set on a continent uh, that follows young adults and and teenage protagonists as JRPGs are wont to do. Um, but there's a lot of political intrigue that's a lot more interesting than I think a lot of JRPGs or, or even other games get into just because it's so long running and uh, it's, you see perspectives from the different countries on the continent and you get to see, uh, you know, a, a kind of a focus on like, is this a good choice is this a bad choice you know oh this looks bad for our country but it looks good for their country and um just just a kind of variety of perspectives in that way right. um it's turn-based combat that's done extremely well it's some of the best turn-based combat i think i've seen in a while um because that that formula can get very old but they they added a lot of really cool features to that um and the characters uh, so far i've actually only played uh, Trails of Cold Steel, which is somewhere in the middle of the series, but uh, the characters are all really charismatic. 
Um, and one thing I noticed about Trials of Cold Steel, which was apparently the first game that got voice acting, is that uh, the company uh, in charge of making those games is willing to let, uh, willing to give the voice actors context for uh, their their lines uh, as they speak their dialogue. It's a it's a real problem, especially in video game voice acting, where actors are frequently not given any context, and so they kind of have to phrase their lines as if uh, the line that came before them was spoken with any kind of tone, uh, because they they don't know what the tone was. They don't know if it was sarcastic, if it was serious, if it was pleading. Um, but the you could tell that these games they really did give them that context because the the responses are very uh, in tune with each other. Uh, the dialogue is very in tune with each other, and so it's actually uh, despite being a fairly old game at this point, even uh, it's got a really strong uh, voice acting, and it's got a really good uh, not translation. Uh, basically a translation. There's a more specialized word, but I can't remember what it is right now. Um, but it's a, it's a lot of fun, and it's a great time to get into the series uh, because the two games in the series that were kind of in the middle that had not yet made it to the United States, uh, one of them is getting released later this year, uh, localized. That's the word I'm looking for. It's getting localized and released this year, and then the other one is getting localized and released next year. So pretty soon we're going to have access to the entire series for basically the first time uh, minus one or two of the newest ones that have not yet been localized. Uh, so uh, that's going to be my recommendation this week. All right. Matthew, what do you offer this week? So um, last year I saw the Sonic the Hedgehog movie um, <laughs> and I was, uh, I had very low expectations and, and I went into the, the movie, when I say went into the movie, as, as we pulled it up on stream, um, and I watched it, and I was very happy with it. And then I, after watching it, I was like, okay, I'm going to go see the sequel in theaters. And let me tell you, Sonic the Hedgehog 2, it's, it's not Citizen Kane, okay? But is it two hours of fun that you'll have? Yes. It is, like... Crazy how like really you know solid and like how how good the movies are that you know they're really the only good like video game movies that I've that I've ever seen that and Detective Pikachu was pretty good but I think the the Sonic the Sonic games are or the Sonic movies are better um, it was re- really good and they've set up a sequel um, you know and I at at the end of the second one and there's there's some for like people who have played the people who have played the Sonic games um, will will notice a couple nods and a couple of you know plot plots uh, from the games and just things things from it um, the the um, Jim Carrey as Dr. Eggman is very funny I don't always like Jim Carrey because he's very over the top but Dr. Eggman's character is ridiculous so it, it matches really well um, and then Idris Elba plays Knuckles and that was an inspired casting choice. Um, it's, it's, it's just very good. Uh, and the one thing that I, that I think is really cool about it is, um, so Idris Elba is Knuckles, obviously a big star. They got Jim Carrey to be, uh, the, the bad guy, Dr. Ringman, Ben Schwartz is Sonic. These are all very big, big names. Um, but the person who they got to vo- voice Tails, who's the, um, gold fox with two tails, um, hence the name, um, who is basically Sonic's sidekick, they didn't get a celebrity voice actor. They just decided to go with the voice actor um, who had been in the games for the past 
12 years. So they just went with that voice actor. And I thought that was, that was pretty cool. And she did a great job voicing tales. Um, and I, it'd be cool to see other similar kinds of adaptions, um, use non, you know, big time, non Chris uh, Pratt's non Chris Pratt's. Yeah. It's just <laughs> very big different. Cause you know, you have Chris Pratt voices Mario and here is literally a no name unless you are into like uh, video game. Even if you are into like video game voice, actor, like this is like a no name person who they just got because she was the best person for the job. And I think that's, that's pretty cool. So, um, pretty big fan looking forward to the sequel uh they're quite funny uh sonic Thatcher too yeah we saw the first one here and my kids yeah they liked it okay and i think we're, we're gonna see the sequel sometime in the next couple of weeks so we'll have to check that out uh colin what do you have for us this week uh, i'm gonna go with a biography i read this week it's actually i am not a duke basketball fan but i read a biography of uh coach k it was called uh coach k the rise and reign of mike shashevsky by Ian O'Connor, and it kind of it talked about Coach K's career from when he was a player at Army under Bob Knight to um, you know as a head coach at Army, then a head coach at Duke, and everything in between, including his uh, time as the USA men's basketball team head coach. So it was a pretty fair biography. O'Connor did a good job. I thought of going into the controversy surrounding Krzyzewski throughout his career, uh, with perceived advantages, the way he kind of, uh, treated some student journalists from Duke last year. And I guess there was also an incident about 30 years ago that was very similar that I had no idea about. So he goes into that. And of course, the way that the college basketball game has changed with recruiting uh, when he took over at Duke in 1980 to um, this, uh, his penultimate season is where the book ended. So uh, not this year, but the year before. But yeah, it, uh, I won't say that I'm a big, I'm still, I won't say that I'm a fan yet of Krzyzewski, but it did make me appreciate his uh, coaching career a little bit more. I did not realize that. Uh, with his final four appearance this year, he has more final four appearances than any other head coach in the history of college basketball, including John Wooden um, with 13. He out, he got to that this year. So um, great book though. And even, you know, if you're just into reading sports biographies, definitely recommend that one. Colin, you're a brave man here coming on here uh, talking about your being a Cardinals fan and then pimping uh, Duke basketball <laughs> books. But uh, <laughs> I do appreciate you coming on this week. And uh, Jeremy, Matthew again, also thank you for coming on as usual. And thanks to all our listeners for listening. Uh, that'll do it for us this week. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk to you next time. Hey!